You know, I, I consider myself uh, somewhat of a cheapskate when it comes to uh, going out to eat. You know, my wife can tell you firsthand about this, but, you know, I'll usually consider the, the cost of a meal uh, over, you know, what it might taste like or what I might be in the mood for. Uh, a tradition of our family back, uh, back in Michigan uh, was when, you know, it was someone's birthday, we would usually go to Outback Steakhouse. And, you know, we, we, that was uh, the family's favorite place to go. And so we would, we'd go there and everyone would, you know, usually pick out a steak that they'd want. But I'd usually end up, uh, you know, picking uh, some uh, chicken pasta dish or something like that because I just couldn't bear the thought of having someone, you know, purchase uh, such an expensive steak on my behalf. You know, and you'd probably never find me as well at a restaurant such as Massa in New York, and I hope I'm not pronouncing it wrong, M-A-S-A, but this is a couple of reasons why is because, number one, it's a sushi restaurant, and you'd never find me at a sushi restaurant, but also uh, because this is uh, reportedly one of the most expensive restaurants in the United States. Uh, your tab alone for a single meal would be well over $600 a meal. Well, in the Bible, uh, there is one meal that I consider one of the most expensive meals in, in, in Scripture, and it's found in Genesis chapter 25. Now, our text for this evening is going to be in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 15 through 17. But in Genesis chapter 25, we have the account of Isaac and Rebekah having those two sons, the, these twin boys by the name of Esau and Jacob. And if you remember, before they were born, the Lord spoke to Rebecca and told her that she was going to have basically these two nations uh, born within her womb and that the, the, the younger, excuse me, the older shall serve the younger. Well, of course, they were born. Esau, uh, we're told, was Isaac's uh, favorite. Uh, he was, remember, he was the skillful hunter. He, he was a man of the field. Remember, the Bible describes him as being a hairy man. Uh, he was red in appearance. Uh, but we're also told that the, the, the younger son, Rebecca, was loved by, or excuse me, that Jacob was loved by Rebecca. And again, he was described as a peaceful man. He was a man who stayed at home. Uh, we find him cooking uh, throughout Scripture. And uh, when he, they came out of the womb, you remember uh, Jacob had a hold of Esau's ankle. And that name, the name Jacob, literally means uh, to supplant or, or to take by the heel. And it was this foreshadowing of the life that they would have of Jacob uh, trying to um, uh, supplant Esau as the firstborn. And so although they were twins, of course, Esau, again, he was the firstborn. And so being the firstborn had the privileges of this great birthright uh, in this culture. And the birthright meant that you know, when it was time for his, their father to pass along, uh, Esau would have the right to be the new patriarch of the family. He, he would be the leader of the family. But, of course, that also meant that when it was time to dole out the inheritance, the firstborn would get a double portion. He would get twice as much as the other uh, brothers in the family. Well, we remember in Genesis 25 of this account where we first meet Jacob and Esau all grown up. That Jacob, uh, or that, that Esau is famished. Remember, he comes in from the field. Uh, he's out there hunting and he is famished. And he requests Jacob to have some of that stew that he's cooking there. He says, that red stuff right there, that looks good to me. Let me have some of that, Jacob. And of course, Jacob asks before he gives him that, that stew uh, to uh, let me have your birthright. Trade it for your birthright as the firstborn son in exchange for that meal. 
course, was Esau literally starving to death when he came into the field wanting that, that, that soup or that stew? Well, probably not. He probably literally was not uh, starving to death. But this is, this is a glimpse into the character of this man, this man by the name of Esau. And, of course, he agrees to the terms of this deal. But as we find out here in Hebrews chapter 12, that Esau, like many other individuals, are living for the present. They don't consider the, the, the spiritual aspect of things, that God is not number one in their lives, but they are wanting you know, what's then and there. They, they want what's good for them. And again, Esau is this prime example. So what we want to consider this evening is how the Hebrews writer... The book of Hebrews is going to give us a little bit more of a glimpse into the life of this man by the name of Esau, how he describes him and his spiritual implication and his actions that brought forth this role. And even the role that we as brethren, as brothers and sisters, have uh, for one another. And so uh, if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to Hebrews chapter 12. And we're going to start reading uh, in verse uh, 12. And then then the text up here is up on the board if you want to continue on throughout the lesson. But in Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 12, notice what the writer says. He says, Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble and make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Right, the Hebrews writer here is encouraging the Christians that he is writing to to uh, keep up with the brethren, to, to help them, to strengthen them. And notice as we jump into verse 15 here that men like Esau, uh, we read here, are, are bitter. In verse 15 it says, See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it may be defiled. Notice first, before we jump into this description of Esau, that the text here in verse 15 says, See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. You know, in biblical terms, you know, often they, they traveled in these caravans, in these packs, uh, because it was safer to do that. You know, of course, they didn't have cars or, or, or anything of that nature, but they traveled in caravans and packs as they went from city to city. And, you know, if you were to fall behind, if you were to come short, uh, you know, you, you could have been overtaken by robbers or, or, or your own weaknesses or sickness. And so it was always uh, an advantage to travel in these packs. And the term here, notice, uh, see to it that no one comes short. Again, see to it. This is an interesting word because it comes from the Greek word uh, epikaspeo, which uh, is another description of uh, a term used for the eldership. An elder is to be an episcopeo, uh, someone who oversees. And so here the Hebrews writer is saying, see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. As a function of an elder, they are an overseer of a congregation. They are someone who oversees the spiritual welfare, the administration of a congregation. But here the Hebrews writer is using it in a more general term to encumbrance all Christians. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. And then he says, and then he gets into these reasons. He says that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble and by it may be defiled. 
See, uh, we understand what bitterness is. You know, a simple definition is hard heartedness that harbors resentment about the past. You know, it's just something that when you think of your blood boils, you know, it's just something you can't let go. It consumes your thoughts. And do you think Esau, a man like Esau, uh, as we read in Genesis 25, could harbor resentment in his life about his brother, that, about things in the past? Well, of course. Of course we could. And, you know, and, and when we get into Genesis chapter 27, when we continue reading in the account of these two brothers, you know, Jacob pulls another stunt. Uh, but this time he does it with, with the help of his mother, Rachel, by deceiving his father into giving him the blessing of the firstborn. Not only did, uh, he, did Jacob take the birthright, but he also took the blessing that belonged to Esau. Remember, I, I, Isaac was well advanced in years. Uh, his eyes were dim, the Bible tells us. He, he really could not see at that time. And so when Rachel found out that, uh, that uh, excuse me, Rebecca found out that, that um, he was about to give the blessing to the son Esau, you know, she has, um, she has him, Jacob, come in and she dresses him up in Esau's clothes and she puts some uh, goat skin on the back of his head and on his hands so that he would feel like Esau because remember, Esau was a hairy man. And so uh, she dresses him up just like him and comes in to has him come in to see her his father and pretends to be Esau himself. And because of that, uh, Isaac blesses Jacob. He gives the blessing that was meant for Esau to Jacob. And again, the, the trick worked. Esau comes into the field and he finds out that this happens and he is upset. He's upset that, that he's been duped again by his brother. Matter of fact, in Genesis chapter 27, verse 34, it says Esau cried out in a great and bitter cry. He was bitter about the whole situation because, uh, again, this was um, he wanted this. He wanted this blessing uh, from his father. And so from that point forward, we're told in Genesis 27, verse 41, that Esau bore a grudge. Uh, he was bitter towards his brother against Jacob. And so that's why they, they send Jacob away, away into the land of Haran to be with um, Uncle Laban. And he's going to be there for uh, at least 20 years, uh, staying away from Esau. Because Esau says there in verse 41 of Genesis 27, he says, The days of my father's mourning are near, and then I will kill my brother Jacob. Esau had this bitterness disposition about him, and so um, he sends. They send Jacob away, but of course, if, if we're familiar with you know this account, uh, when when Jacob comes back, uh, Esau's mind has changed. Uh, thankfully, it appears he dropped his grudge, even though they had been gone uh, for twenty years. And then sometimes bitterness does fade away. Sometimes it fades away over time, and we can put it away. We can. Uh, put it out of our sights, but there are some times that we just can't wipe it out. Again, it, it holds on to us, and we, every time we think about it, you know, we, we want to, ooh, you know, that, that, that gets me upset. But Paul, in the New Testament, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31, he specifically addresses bitterness, and he tells Christians there in Ephesus, he says, you need to put these things away from you. And he starts off with bitterness. He says bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander and malice. These are things that you need to get out of your life as a Christian. Do not harbor this resentment for one another. Get rid of bitterness. 
You know, in Acts chapter 8, and, and maybe you're familiar with this, uh, this account as well, this, uh, of this man by the name of Simon the Sorcerer. You remember Simon? Uh, Philip the Evangelist, he, he comes down to Samaria. Remember, the, the, the gospel is starting to spread by Acts chapter 8. And he comes down to Samaria, and he's preaching to the Samaritans. And he's preaching about Jesus, and they're believing, and the Bible says they're being baptized. And because of that, the apostles hear this back in Jerusalem, and they send Peter and John to Samaria. Peter and John come because they want to impart to them uh, the, the miraculous uh, gift of the Holy Spirit. They want to lay their hands on them so that they can have this miraculous gift to help build up the church in that time period. And remember Simon, when he sees Peter and John doing this, Ooh, you know, he, he's, he's a young Christian. Right? He's just been a Christian. He just became a Christian for, uh, for a short time. But when he sees them using the, this great power that only the apostles have, he wanted to purchase it. Right? Simon wanted to purchase this ability to bestow the spirit through the laying on of hands. But Peter and John, they sharply rebuke him. In Acts chapter 8, verses 22 and 23, and notice what they say. They say, for I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. You are in the gall of bitterness, Simon, that you are poisoned by bitterness. You are full of bitterness. Uh, that word gall of bitterness, it, it, it's literally referencing the gallbladder. In our liver, uh, you know, our body secretes this greenish, yellowish substance uh, we know as bile, which is a very bitter substance within the body, but it's housed within the gallbladder. And when he, it's sort of a play on words that he's saying, in the gall of bitterness, you know, uh, it, it, in the bitterness of bitterness, in the greatest of bitterness. Again, Peter and John are rebuking Simon for this. And though he was a young Christian, right, again, he had not covered... Uh, he had not crucified his covetous ways. Uh, he wanted this great power for himself. And the apostles tell him that he needs to pray for forgiveness and that God would forgive them. But bitterness, bitterness brought Esau and Simon where they did not need to be spiritually. Again, Peter and John, they, they warned Simon to repent. And this is kind of a side uh, note to, to this point that I just want to point out that here is that um, Peter and John, they warned Simon uh, of this great sin that they committed. Notice, they, they didn't ignore Simon's transgressions against God. They were overseeing their brother's spiritual condition. Again, see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. And that's a question that we can ask ourselves as well. Is are we overseeing our brethren to the extent that we can? And again, that, that's a side point to the main point. Uh, here is that men like Esau are bitter, that they allow bitterness to grow root and to spring up and to cause trouble and to defile many. So the Hebrews writer says you need to watch out uh, for this uh, because we see it in the case of Esau in the Old Testament and it can still happen today. But notice in verse 16, as we continue, uh, we also notice that men like Esau are godless. Again, verse 16 that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. See, the bottom line is, and what the Hebrews writer is telling us is that Esau failed to seek holiness in his life. You know, we, again, we see a more complete picture of this man Esau by these uh, writings that we have in the New Testament. You know, the, the Old Testament never refers to Esau as uh, maybe your translation says sexually immoral or a fornicator. It never refers to him as godless or profane or unholy. 
But it's evident uh, in the fact uh, that here in in Hebrews chapter 12 uh, that we're told that he was uh, ungodly because he sold his birthright. And again, uh, we as Christians, if we don't watch out as God's people, uh, we can also become ungodly, unholy like Esau. Again, he, he traded his birthright for a simple meal with temporary benefits. And he treated it, again, as if he did not care. He treated it like it was no big deal. He treated it as if it meant nothing to him. And we, when we, as well, allow the cares and pleasures of this life to take root, you know, we can stop emphasizing these things in our lives as well, such as the worship of God. Uh, the glorifying of God in our daily lives, the praising of God. You know, our prayer life becomes non-existent. You know, maybe, maybe we pray uh, before a meal, uh, but, but what about the rest of the time? What about when we wake up or when we go to, go to bed uh, in times of trouble, in times of, of happiness? Our, is our prayer life existent? Or even in his church, we can stop emphasizing this in our lives when, when we start to disregard his church, when we put it uh, as unholy, or even his people. And we start placing these mundane things before God in our lives. You know, in the story of the parable of the sower, you know, the, 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 that thorny soil that, you're, that God is trying to compete against, he tells us that, you know, the, the worries of this life or the riches or, or the pleasures, those things are competing uh, with our hearts. Right? Those things are the things that uh, men like Esau, are, they're in love with. Their, their hearts are full of these types of things, the worries of this life, the riches, the, you know, the love of money, or, or the pleasures of this life. But the Bible demands our holiness. It demands our holiness as Christians. First Peter chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, Peter said, But like the Holy One who called you... Be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Right? Peter says that as Christians, we need to be holy just as God is holy. And not only as Christians individually, but also as the church. Uh, uh, Paul said in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 27, that, that he wants to present the church, uh, Jesus does, to himself, holy and blameless. Right? Not, without, not with spot or wrinkle, but he wants a pure and holy and blameless church. And holiness really involves two things. First, it involves a separation. You know, we, again, in the Old Testament know that God called the Jews to be separate from others. In Exodus chapter 19, he says, you know, there's the rest of the world and then there's you. You know, don't follow in their ways. I'm going to give you some commandments and you need to follow these. Do not follow the world in theirs. And of course, that again is uh, reiterated to us as well in the New Testament. First Peter chapter two, verse nine, uh, Peter writes, but you are a chosen race. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. See, God puts us, he calls us as a chosen race. We are a royal priesthood, a people for his own possession, a holy nation. So there is this separation involved in holiness that, again, we are commanded to be holy. And so we must separate from the world in that aspect, but also Holiness involves purity. Uh, it involves purity in the mind and heart. You know, Matthew chapter 5, verse 8, one of the Beatitudes Jesus gave, he's blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. You know, those who want to see God need to be pure in heart. 
And Paul told us in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, uh, as he was finishing up his uh, epistle to the, the Philippians, he said, Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good report, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. He's telling the Philippians, you know, you need to keep your minds right, your, your hearts right. You need to dwell upon these things, uh, honorable things, right things, pure things. Purity uh, involves the mind or the heart uh, being pure and also uh, the body. You know, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 4, when Paul was writing to that young church there, he was telling them that they needed to possess their own bodies in sanctification. Right, to keep it, again, separate from the world. And also in speech, the Christian needs to be pure as well. You know, we can say critical and negative and backbiting things. We can dishonor uh, with our mouth. Uh, but that uh, holiness demands much better. You know, James chapter 1, uh, verse 19, the, the writer there tells us that we need to be slow to speak. Or excuse me, a quick. Let me get there. Uh, that we need to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Again, holiness demands better. It involves separation. It involves purity. And therefore, um, it's a separation, again, of our thoughts and actions and speech to the glory of God. Right? The things that we think, the things that we do, the things that we say. And again, you might be saying, well, that's a, that's a hard thing to do. I can't be perfect. And of course, we understand that. You know, we are not perfect individuals, but surely we can be better at it. Surely we can continue to work at it. Are we actively pursuing this? Because notice verse 14 again in Hebrews chapter 12. And maybe you missed this as we first uh, read this verse. But again, Hebrews 12 verse 14, uh, the writer there says, Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. He says, no one will see the Lord without sanctification, without being sanctified, without uh, being holy is what he's saying there. And so ungodly living, as we see here in the example of Esau, it causes one to forthright his, his, his spiritual birthright, if you will. A single meal cost Esau, of course, his physical birthright uh, because it, it meant something to Jacob. He saw the value in it. Uh, he saw uh, the demand upon it, but Esau saw no value in it. Right? He treated it as if it didn't care. Uh, these, the, uh, the holy things, the things of God. So men like Esau, they don't ask daily, you know, am I living a holy life before the Lord? And we need to do that. We need to make sure that we are living holy, that we are separate, and that we are uh, pure in the sight of God. And notice lastly in this verse, in these verses, in verse 17, men like Esau are unrepentant. In verse 17, as the writer um, ends his thoughts about Esau, he says, For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it with tears. You know, many times... Uh, we can never, you know, the undo the consequences of our sins. You know, the, a murderer, of course, cannot bring back to life one who has been murdered. Uh, a lie may cause someone to never trust us again. There are things uh, that we do that, that uh, maybe have these consequences that, that last a lifetime. And it's evident here that the true repentance of Esau's heart was, it was non-existent. 
Uh, true repentance, uh, there's a difference between true repentance and worldly repentance. And Paul writes about that in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. Notice what he says here. He says, for the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Right? The sorrow of the world that I'm sorry because I got caught. I'm sorry because... You know, um, I, I want something. You know, I want you to, to feel better about me. It, it's not godly sorrow. It's not that I hurt uh, God, that I sinned against God. That's the type of uh, repentance that, that Paul is calling for here in 2 Corinthians 7.10. And so, uh, you know, maybe you want to turn to Genesis chapter 27 real quick as we kind of conclude these thoughts. In Genesis chapter 27, again, this is the account of, of um, Esau and Jacob, and Jacob stealing uh, the, the blessing that was to be uh, for Esau. We're, again, we're told that Esau may have cried with bitter wailing, again, but there were no answers to his request. Uh, Jesus is, of course, Jesus, uh, we, we see him many times within Scripture as one who, who, is, who cried, Jesus wept, John chapter 11, verse 35. And there are other times where uh, he was in such agony that that he cried tears. uh, uh, And that the Bible tells us that when he did that, uh, God heard him. Matter of fact, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7 tells us that in the days of his flesh, meaning Jesus, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. God listened to Jesus because of uh, who he was. Again, both Jesus and Esau wept, but Jesus did so with this profound respect for the Almighty Father who could answer prayer, while Esau wept because of his selfish desires. James chapter 4, verse 3, you know, the writer there, James, tells us that, you know, you ask and you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Uh, do we sometimes go to God in prayer asking with wrong motives? Of course, that, you know, that's the man, this, this man Esau. He, he had these wrong uh, motives involved in his repentance. Uh, he was only upset and crying and bitter because uh, Jacob had stolen what was his, his blessing. He wanted that blessing. It was a great blessing uh, that, that it was given to him. Notice again in Genesis 27, starting in verse 27, he says that, So he came close and kissed him, uh, being, uh, this being Jacob disguised as Esau. And when he smelled the smell of his garments, he blessed him and said, See, the smell of my son is like the smell of a field which the Lord has blessed. Now may God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and an abundance of grain and new wine. May people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be master of your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be those who curse you and blessed be those who bless you. That was a great promise that Isaac gave that was to be for Esau. But of course, Jacob supplanted him in that moment and received that great blessing. As we uh, turn back to Hebrews chapter 17 and we think of these thoughts of Esau being a man who was unrepentant. Again, repentance means turning. uh, It means a turning. It's turning away from something that's contrary, that's unholy, uh, that's not uh, according to God's will. And it's turning towards God and saying, God, 
Uh, I'm here for you. It cannot be with fake and selfish cheers because, of course, God knows the heart. And God wants a broken and contrite heart. He does not want a prideful heart that comes to him in repentance, but he wants a broken and contrite heart, David says in Psalm 51, verse 17. And so we see that men like Esau, they refuse to repent. Too much, there's too much of themselves in their heart, too much pride. Well, again, the, the Old Testament, it, it can furnish for us so many valuable lessons. Again, Romans 15, 4 uh, lets us know that. Uh, and so the Christians, you know, we must understand uh, tr- that treating, our, again, our spiritual birthright is, is something that we need to carefully consider, to not uh, leave it as something mundane and ordinary and everyday, but this is something that, that uh, we need to put uh, up and remember it and to keep it on our minds. Because once Isaac had had blessed Jacob, again, there was no chance for Esau to reclaim his birthright. There was no chance for him to reclaim that great blessing. And once Christians stand before God on the day of judgment, there will be no second chances. Uh, If we sold or forfeited our spiritual birthright, again, Esau, he paid this heavy price we, we read about for just this one Meal, This one meal with these temporary benefits that he grew bitter, uh, that he had this godless attitude, again, uh, an unholy attitude and an unrepentant heart. And so as the the writer of Hebrews tells us back in Hebrews chapter 12, uh, verse 15, see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. And are we doing that, church? Are we keeping our brothers and sisters in mind uh, so that so that, again, as he says there uh, in verse uh, 15, so that uh, no one will come short of the grace of God. As a church, you know, we, we can always do better uh, of helping our, our brothers and sisters. And, and if there's someone here tonight uh, who maybe needs the prayers of the church, or the congregation here, we would love the opportunity to pray for you, uh, to, to help you in your Christian walk, to strengthen you and to encourage you. Or maybe you're here this evening and maybe uh, you're not a child of God and, and you're ready to learn uh, what that means. Or maybe you're ready to put on Christ in baptism. Uh, whatever uh, whatever your, your desire is tonight, if we can help you in any way, as together we stand and sing this song of invitation.